I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you, guys. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Real Talk. I'm your host, Anna Pajaski. In this episode, we're talking nuclear waste. I was joined in the UCL studio by Matt Allenson, who I originally introduced as a nuclear waste enthusiast, but he wasn't actually too keen on that term. Uh, that makes me sound like I'm on many more government lists than I... Well, I mean, I might be on some, um, but that makes me sound like a really dangerous nerd uh, when I'm, in fact, I think, just a nerd. Excellent. Yeah, it was really funny when, when we were introduced and you were recommended to come on the podcast, I sort of said, you know, what materials are you interested in? You tell me all about your PhD in organic LEDs and stuff. Mm. And I was kind of like, oh, yeah, cool, 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 cool. Um, yeah, don't really want to talk to scientists. <laughs> and then you were like, I run a Twitter account, which... <laughs> <laughs> tracks nuclear trains in the UK. And I was like, obviously, I want to talk to you about that instead. Excellent. Uh, so here we are. <laughs> yes, here we are. So um, the, the, the Twitter account is, uh, it wasn't the start point of me becoming obsessed with nuclear waste. I've sort of always been a bit obsessed with nuclear waste. And I've also been a little bit obsessed with trains. But anyway, nuclear waste uh, and nuclear waste trains uh, became a passion for me when I was waiting for a train one day to go home, I live in. Uh, used to live in Homerton in East London, and I get the uh, get the overground um, from Highbury and Islington. Uh, if you uh, love London infrastructure based chat, this might be the podcast for you. <laughs> um, anyhow, if you if you live on that stretch of the overground, you may know that freight trains roll through it. Which, when I first saw, when I first moved to that part of London, I was really surprised that giant, like you know, they take five minutes to roll through the station. These ginormous freight trains roll through central London, basically because there's no M25 for trains. So these massive trains have to pass through central London. So they kind of come through Stratford, through the Olympic Park, then they go through Highbury over over Cam. Camden Town, you know that in Camden Town, the big bridge says Camden Town, they go over that. And then they kind of go up to Wembley, and then they're free to go through the rest of the country. And through being a bit of a train nerd, I know that there's a website called realtimetrains.co.uk, which you can use, uh, and you put in any any station location in the UK, or in fact, any junction location in the UK, and it will tell you all the trains that are due to pass through it at that time. 
because all train information in the UK is publicly accessible. That's how things like CityMapper and all those useful apps like that work. Uh, okay. And anyway, so one day I was just, uh, I was on the platform and I was annoyed because it was cold. And instead of there being a nice overground train, there was like a big freight train going through. Mm-hmm. So I went on real-time trains. I was just like out of interest, like looked up where that freight train was going. Um, and it was like going to like Felixstowe Harbour or something because it was like a big container train. But then I noticed a bit further down the a bit further down the timetable for the freight trains that evening, uh, there was a slot for a train coming from something called Sizewell um, to uh, to Crewe in the in the kind of North West Midlands. Um, now I, I I knew immediately what that meant because Sizewell is uh, a large and rather controversial now. Uh, nuclear power station on the east coast of England, sort of near Ipswich. And I was like, oh my goodness, if it's if it's coming from Sizewell, that train can only really be carrying one thing. Sure. So I then went home and then I looked up where the train was going to, which is a, a siding called Crew Brackets DRS. <laughs> Exactly. What does now, that mean? So uh, I actually already knew what that meant because I am a massive trainer. DRS is uh, Direct Rail Services, which I knew to be the company that run... It, it's a state-owned rail operator that was originally set up to run just the nuclear waste trains in the UK. But yeah, so... I spotted that the train was going to something called Crew DRS, and I sort of knew that DRS ran nuclear waste trains. So then I pulled up all the trains that are supposed to go from this place called Crew DRS, and then basically all nuclear power stations in the south of England had one train, had like a couple of trains a week that were scheduled to go there. Okay. And then trains from there were scheduled to go to Sellafield. Right. And Sellafield, if you don't know, is uh, is kind of the UK's like environmental disaster on sea, sort of. <laughs> but it's um, it not not through its own fault. It's just um, nuclear. It turns out nuclear physics is hard um, because you know the UK was on the forefront of nuclear physics research in the fifties. We had to make up a lot of it as we went along, and some of the things we came up with weren't the best. Okay. Um, so some of the ways we've stored our nuclear waste at Sellafield have turned out like in our 1950s kind of like let's see if this works in you know 2018 we're looking at mm, that's <laughs> that's not worked. What so, would be an example of a thing that hasn't worked? Well, so they've got these large cooling ponds, um, which is where they put stuff in the 50s and 60s, um, and they've just turned out to have been made out of bad materials. Okay. Um, so uh, as we kind of as scientists learn quite rapidly after building the first nuclear reactors, uh, you can get something called uh, neutron embrittlement, which is where the kind of neutrons, which are the subatomic particles which are being thrown off uh, with kind of gay abandon by the uranium and all the nuclear material inside your fuel, your spent fuel, hit into the atoms in your crystal lattice of your concrete or your steel or whatever. Now, neutron is obviously a lot, lot, lot smaller than an atom, but in nuclear waste terms, they're traveling with quite a lot of energy. And if you get a direct hit, you can start to damage the, the crystal structure. I'm sure other people on this podcast have talked about crystal structures. And, Indeed. And if, you start, and if you start moving stuff around in crystal structures, you start altering material properties. So you, start, um, you, can start, you can do loads of things to them. But in the case of uh, these neutron things, you can embrittle them. And if you embrittle things, you make them more likely to be brittle uh <laughs> so shatter smash and all that sort of stuff okay so in the 50s we built a load of like nuclear storage facilities out of stuff that turned out to have not been that fab to build it out of so now you know in the 50s they thought like ah we'll fill this with water we'll make a big concrete thing fill it with water put the nuclear waste in that forget about it for like ten thousand years and you know 
40 years later, we're looking at it like, oh, that's leaking. Oh, okay. <laughs> or like, oh, that's about to leak or something like sure. that. Sure. So, so that's Sellafield. <laughs> right. Um, well, okay, let's take a step back mm. and define the material that we're actually talking about. We mm. broadly called it nuclear waste. Yeah. Can we be any more specific than that? Well, so the stuff that I'm interested in is the stuff that gets carried around in these trains. Um, and the stuff that gets carried around in these trains is uh, spent fuel rods. Now, in the UK now... We mostly use uh, uh, we mostly use like a modern design of reactor. If, if you're sort of into like the history of engineering in the 50s and 60s, Britain did a load of like wacky zany things where it tried to do its own thing because it was still obsessed with the idea it had an empire and was a world power. <laughs> and so you know it like made things like the English Electric Lightning fighter jet, and now it doesn't do that anymore. It just it just buys fighter jets from France or America. Right. Uh, and in a similar way, in the 50s and 60s, we used to try and make our own nuclear reactor designs called Magnox reactors, which we thought were really cool, but actually turned out to not be that cool at all. So now we use uh, what are they called. Um, advanced water reactors yeah now the way so the way they work is that you have a, a big rod of u- u- enriched uranium and you kind of put it in some water and you sort of leave it there and it gives off energy and heats up the water makes steam makes enough steam to drive a turbine and you get electricity from that the thing that's a bit weird about nuclear energy is when you um the way most other power plants work is you burn something and when you burn something your waste products are kind of gaseous and they kind of leave uh, which is convenient for your power plant and very inconvenient for the greenhouse effect. Whereas with nuclear reactors, the the kind of waste products you get are solid. Uh, a uranium atom will split into other nucleides and then they will split and then they will split and then your your waste material remains in the solid. So with nuclear fuel, you have to, even though you have like quite radioactive material left over, there's still plenty of like activity in the fuel rod. You have to take it out and replace it. And that's where things then get a little exciting because the material you have is still really radioactive, but you don't really know what to do with it. So what we do do is you then ship it up to Sellafield where they separate out the the useful uranium um, from all the waste. And then they take the useful uranium and they kind of put that back into a fuel rod, which they then send back to a new power plant. They also take out the plutonium and with the plutonium, they then start to do stuff that we don't like, like build nuclear bombs but you can also i don't think we do this in the uk but other nuclear plants in the world you can also extract medically useful isotopes as well okay so i guess a question on lots of listeners minds might be if these trains are coming through places where people live for example Mm. london but presumably all along that train line Mm -hmm. are these trains dangerous for us to be around no, basically. The nuclear waste is kept underwater, and water is an absolutely fantastic device for stopping ionising radiation from damaging anything, really. It can absorb a huge amount of stuff. And then the outer area of the, the underwater bit is cased in lead, which is also fantastic at absorbing everything. And then the, the, the compartments that contain the nuclear waste then get bolted closed and loaded onto a train under armed guard. And then the train pootles off on its own way okay so there there's basically no radiation is emitted from the trains at all and there's loads and loads of reports and studies that are publicly made publicly available but also one of my kind of goals with this twitter account is that if anyone is concerned and they see that a train is running nearby they can get a geiger counter and stand on you know brixton station or stand on highbury station with their counter and and can confirm it for themselves and have you done that i have not done that yet because (laughs) i don't fully understand the fueling cycles of british power plants but i am beginning to learn 
unlearn them from this Twitter account. No sizable trains ever ran while I lived on that train line, and now I've moved away, okay. um, which is annoying. And the other thing that's annoying is that there's the Duke of York pub in Brixton, which has a nice beer garden, which is on the train line. Okay. And on days where these trains run, the nuclear waste trains will run right past the Duke of York's beer garden at about 7.40 in the evening. And one ran yesterday, and I was busy and couldn't go. Um, so yeah, I've been meaning to sit in the Duke of York with a Geiger counter. I hope no one from the Duke of like I don't like, I don't know if really worry the staff at the Duke of York. Um, I trust the reports I've read that say that the trains don't emit any radiation. In 1986, the UK bought out its new kind of nuclear flask, which is the thing that takes the waste. And they wanted to demonstrate to everybody that uh, if something were to go wrong with one of these trains, um, it wouldn't spill any nuclear waste. So to prove this, they took one of these flasks and in like some real kind of Looney Tunes sort of cartoon way, one mile up the track, they took an old train that was being retired and ran it empty at full speed into the nuclear fuel task and crashed it at full speed into it okay and and it survived obviously they knew it was going to survive because you don't really run that sort of test if you don't if you're not going to know that it's going to work sure so okay so presumably they invited all of the media and yes yeah, everybody yeah. to come and watch this and it's really good actually because this, so this youtube footage is off um i think it's off like the bbc news at six in in the in the 80s and everyone's there you know with like their fantastic hair and it's <laughs> it's a, the thing that i find most striking about this video footage is it stars john humphreys as the newsreader and okay. he doesn't look much younger than he does today <laughs> so i think john humphreys has looked about the same age for about 30 years that there's like another argument about what about you know international terrorism what about that sort of thing mm. uh, as i kind of alluded to before they're basically impossible to open these big tanks and they can withstand a fully loaded train hitting into them so they're pretty much bulletproof as well mm. the other thing is you can't really steal a train because they can only really go forwards or backwards in one so sure. it's quite easy to catch you <laughs> Um, so <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's basically nothing too much to be feared from these trains. Okay, brilliant. But that said, oh. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> although there's nothing to be feared about these trains during the Olympics, they did stop running them through because they run, they run literally underneath the Olympic park, the size of trains. Yeah. yeah. They, they did declare that they weren't going to be running during the Olympics. Presumably it's one of those things where like the nuclear decommissioning authority said like, you know, we could, you could, we could run four a day through and it wouldn't matter. Sure. But it maybe it's just a publicity thing. I think these trains are safe, which is why I can sleep soundly at night knowing that I publicize their data in real time. What interaction have you had on this Twitter account then? So it gets retweeted by a bunch of people. I've, I've not done a huge amount of promoting of it. It's sort of organically grown itself. We've got a bit of a following amongst uh, train spotting Twitter, which mm-hmm. is now a, a black hole that I have fully fallen down. Oh, wow. Um, train spotting Twitter is incredible. Tell me more about that. They <laughs> just love trains. Sure. They really, really love trains and they really, really love like arcane details of trains. They love like numbers and serials and stuff like that. And they tweet pictures of them and they they just share pictures of them and they compliment and they're like, oh, at, you know so-and-so like have you seen this like oh it's a beauty and it's just like and everything and it's everything seems so 
so nice compared to every other community on Twitter. Sure. <laughs> um, I'm just fully on board with train spotting Twitter. Um, there's no revenge porn in the train spotting no, world. <laughs> nobody is using deep fakes to kind of do something weird to Thomas the Tank Engine on uh, on, on train spotting Twitter. Everything is lovely. Um, and it's. Um, and you're it, part of that community? Well, sort yeah, I'm on the fringe of it. Um, do you know much about the history of nuclear waste in this country? Well, yeah, a bit. It's um, it's kind of amusingly tied in with my family a bit because my dad's from Cumbria and was born shortly after the Windscale Fire, which was the UK's version of Chernobyl. Oh, wow. Uh, and it might explain why my dad is the way he is. Uh, <laughs> I hope he's not listening. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, so, sorry, so, Dad. Sorry, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the UK was involved in nuclear energy from the get-go. We had people involved in the Manhattan Project. We had... Uh, Rutherford's group at the Cavendish in Cambridge were doing all the really interesting stuff, kind of like working out that atoms had nuclei and all that sort of material. There were the people at Harwell as well, weren't there? Exactly, yeah. yeah. In Oxfordshire. Yeah. yeah. And um, also all these all these sorts of people were kind of sat around and also the UK had delusions of, well, <laughs> a bit harsh to say delusions. If anyone watches The Crown, uh, <laughs> it, gives, it gives a nice uh, kind of sense of the UK was... Uh, still felt like it was a world power Mm -hmm. and wanted to be the forefront of technology, but was rapidly losing the resources to do so because it had bankrupted itself in two world wars in short succession. But before it gave up on being truly independent, it it did a lot of harebrained things. So the UK had its own rocketry program. We had a thing called Blue Arrow, which is super cool. And we basically lost because um, it was too expensive and all our rocket scientists went to America to work with the Americans. And we also had, uh, we built lots of fighter jets and things that we don't do anymore. We had things like the Vulcan and the Valiant. And the other thing that we desperately tried to do is we tried to kind of do all our nuclear stuff on our own as well, because it was a kind of a scary time. The uh, America had built a, a atomic bomb, dropped it on Japan. Russia had built one and had um, scared the pants off everybody by building it really, really quickly, um, which it turned out they'd managed to do with the help of some Americans who fed them some secrets. <laughs> but exactly. And so Britain and Britain was like, we need a nuclear weapon. So we started desperately trying to build a nuclear weapon. So we started building nuclear power plants um, to generate this sort of stuff. Now, the Americans and the Russians with building their nuclear power plants were single-mindedly focused on building bombs. And the Brits thought, well, we're not going to be the first to build a bomb, we're not even going to be the second to build a bomb, but we'll be the first to build a nuclear power station that generates commercially available power, so we can still be the first at something, which they did. Cool. Um, so we got the first power plant, which was cool. But yeah, as I kind of said earlier when I was explaining sort of what nuclear fuel is, the moment you start building nuclear reactors, you start generating nuclear waste. Um, because it doesn't go anywhere, it stays with your fuel. So the history of nuclear waste in the UK is basically very intrinsically tied in with the history of nuclear energy generation. So we started, we decided that uh, there was an old military establishment in um, Sellafield up in the northwest of England that was good because nobody lived there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was on the Irish Sea. So we would ship our <laughs> nuclear waste up there. And we would, uh, we would strip out the stuff we wanted, which was the plutonium, mm-hmm. which we then made into a bomb that we sent to Australia, um, which we, we used to blow up a small patch of Australia. Oh. That's, where we, that's where we did our weapons testing. In the 1560s, yeah, we just, as far away as as possible. far away as well. Exactly. So that is a recurring theme of nuclear waste. Um, as far away as possible is the best possible way. Um, but uh, so we we did all the extraction stuff at various places around the country, and then we started out by throwing it into the Irish Sea. 
which rapidly turned out to be a terrible idea and was very irritating to the newly formed Republic of Ireland and also very annoying to the um, Isle of Man as well, which also is sort of like downwind and down current from all these things. So we decided that we'd start keeping it in one place um, underwater in tanks. And so we kind of did that with Sellafield. And it's just sitting there, and it will sit there now for indefinitely. So yeah, the, the so the the fifty stuff we have to kind of it's, it's a bit of a headache because you know we invented our own styles of reactors which have their own kind of styles of waste, and we stored them in water tanks. Where we didn't really know what we were doing; we we're just making it up as we went along, and that is all kind of a bit gross and a bit rubbish and a bit falling apart. So we we have to sort of like dredge it out and kind of make it safe again so what so the current nuclear waste that we're currently generating what you do is you get all the useful stuff out of it you kind of you dissolve the fuel rod so that you've got you've got this big lump of uranium and all and all the other jazz that holds it together and in that is all the waste that you don't want and all the plutonium you want for weapons and all the iodine you want for medical treatment and stuff you basically dissolve everything in a big vat of acid and then you do chemical processes to separate out the different radioactive chemicals which then leaves you with all the stuff you want and all the stuff you don't want both in liquid phase and then the stuff you don't want is your nuclear waste it's liquid and a really useful thing you can do with liquids is turn them into glass So this is called vitrification, and this is basically what we do with our nuclear waste. So we take this big kind of radioactive jug of gross um, (laughs) that we would historically have thrown into the Irish Sea, and we mix it in with glass. Can you get ground up glass, uh, like it's probably actually recycled bottles that have been cleaned. Oh, cool. it's, yeah, it's, it's a useful way of kind of like recycling glass. So you get the glass material, you pour it all in together, you stir it and you let it set because uh, a really useful quality of glass is that it's impermeable to water, which is why you, you make bottles out of them, mm-hmm. why we've been making bottles out of them for thousands and thousands of years. Because a big problem with nuclear waste is you don't really want it to go anywhere. As sure. we said earlier, you want it as far away as possible. Um, but you want to know that it's staying as far away as possible. Um, what we do is we we make basically big glass bricks of the stuff, but you don't want to make them too big because another problem with nuclear waste is obviously it generates its own heat. Mm-hmm. Um, so we make these big glass bricks and then we kind of like pack them into steel containers. And now in the UK, we still then pile them up in Cumbria. <laughs> okay. Um in Sweden and Finland, they've both decided that they're going for something called a, a kind of a deep geological storage facility. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you do is you make this glass, which you then put in steel, which you then write, please do not open in big <laughs> letters uh, on the top. And then you find an old, old, old mine, nice and deep underground in an area that geologically you reckon isn't going to have anything happen to it. Like a earthquake? Yeah, no earthquakes, no kind of rising, no sinking, no anything, no water coming in. You want it to be nice and dry. Okay. You, you want it to kind of, you, you want it to be like the most boring place for the next 10,000 years. Right. Then you go and you take your drums down there and then you kind of put a big door on it mm-hmm. and you lock it. And then again, you write, please don't open. Yeah. And then you wander off. You just leave it. You just leave it. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And you check on it every now and again, presumably. I guess, yeah. <laughs> you probably like do soil samples nearby, soil right. checks and stuff like that. But Because uh, it, it, it begs a really interesting question because like the oldest continually surviving structures known to humanity are the pyramids. They are well old, famously. Um, Jesus was alive closer to the invention of the iPod than the building of the pyramids. Mm. Like, he's, like Cleopatra, actually, is an Egyptian pharaoh, is closer to the invention of the iPod than the, the pyramids. They're, they're, they're well old. and We need to sort of go an order of magnitude older than that. Yeah. So we need to be building things that are like, way older than we've had like written language yeah which begins to when you begin to sort of comprehend how long a how long a thing is that you've got to build that'll last that long it gets a bit it get you get a bit existential that you want to build something longer than humanity's been well then it makes sense then that we want to store it in mountains and yeah. in like geological features that have been there for that much longer right yeah exactly because it get but the other thing that gets really interesting because if you start thinking about we want to build something that's like 10 times older than the ancient Egyptians, mm. we only learnt to decipher hieroglyphics in like the late 19th century. And that was a language that had existed for, that was a language that had been written down for 3,000 years. So if we think we want to like make a nuclear waste dump and we want to write on the door, please don't open right. in English in a Roman alphabet. How do we know that in 3,000 years' time some people are going to wander along? They're like, what does that say? No idea. Let's crack this door open. Well, that's why you have to use emojis, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to have, like, vomiting emoji <laughs> and, like, like sad emoji. <laughs> sad crying eyes emoji sad, yeah, exactly. with the explosion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you just, yeah, that's basically what, that that is basically what they've done. And... That also goes beyond probably the, well, possibly the existence of countries or, yep. go, or certainly governments, yeah. right? Who who regulates this in the future? We don't know. Exactly. There's a really weird disposal method. Uh, takes in takes geology back into account again, which is actually you go for somewhere geologically quite active. You go for a subduction zone, which is where one plate passes underneath the other. I remember my tectonic plates from school. Absolutely, yeah. yep. GCSE, GCSE geography <laughs> comes shining through. So the, the plan would be that you go out to... Cause subduction zones take place at sea and there's a big one and they're usually at the edge of edges of oceans and continents so there's a big subduction zone i think between the pacific and chile which is what the andes mountains are they're the mountains being forced up by that subduction zone so you would bury the nuclear waste in the crust that's going underneath no and then problem solved because it gets driven down into the mantle Whoa. and you're sort of returning it to where it came from i like that idea yeah Again, it's got to last ages. And also you then have to rewrite the laws of the sea um, because you're not allowed to put nuclear waste in the sea oh. or under the sea. Okay. Um, Is but, that... Yeah. Why? 
I just it's a poor form. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think it sort of becomes everyone's problem. Uh, I think nuclear waste is is a like people always say, oh, nuclear energy is a great thing, but nuclear waste that's a real that's a real problem with it. Um, But I actually think nuclear waste is one of the benefits of nuclear energy because, especially in the UK, if we burn fossil fuels for energy, the consequences of it really don't affect us. Mm -hmm. Like global warming rising that's that really affects like mauritius and bangladesh that mm. doesn't doesn't affect us at all maybe norfolk maybe norfolk but like we've got a lot of norfolk to lose um <laughs> there's there's not a lot going on um and no i'm like <laughs> offended my dad and the population of norfolk <laughs> um, we, love we, you, we love you norfolk we sorry. love you norfolk yeah no yeah there are low-lying areas of the uk but like it's not as bad as you know it doesn't affect other countries whereas whereas nuclear fuel is sort of like forces the country it forces the people that benefit from the energy to also really have to deal with the mess yeah no it's that's like, brilliant it's like you've made this mess you're gonna have to clean it up that's an excellent point yeah it's it's like easy jet flights it's like if you want your easy jet flight to be clean you've got to take your recycling with you when you get off <laughs> You can't rely on someone else. It's like the low-cost airline of fuel. Yeah, you can't just pump it out. You can't just pump it up into the sky and say, "Well, that's polar bears' problems now." Well, actually, uh, that's a question that I had for you: is why can't we just blast all our nuclear waste up into space and just let it carry on yeah. forever? So we can definitely do that. The problem with that is occasionally spaceships don't work, and then mm. what you've done is you've made a really large firework with highly radioactive waste. <laughs> okay. Um, Sorry, Which would no. make you very unpopular in Florida, I guess. <laughs> Again, Florida, like, we could launch them from Norfolk, maybe. <laughs> like, we're, Norfolk's a lost cause. Uh, we, yeah. So, so space disposal is a method, and I don't know. I don't know if you've ever had anyone on this podcast uh, talking about future carbon or anything like no. that, like nanotubes. Um, so people talk about nanotubes and future carbon being our gateway to the space elevator. Mm which is a ridiculous, ridiculous concept, which will probably never happen. Yeah. And if it will happen, it will happen outside my lifetime, so I don't need to worry about my words coming back to bite me. But if the space elevator happens, yeah. that could be a nuclear waste disposal route. You just sort of, like, take it up there and... And then you just push it. Throw it at God's <laughs> face. <laughs> it's his problem now. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you just push it off into space and then it, there's nothing to stop it, so it will just carry just on. Just go. Yeah, I like that idea, and I think that we could also do that with other things as well. Yeah, it would be useful. That, like many things. Well, Elon Musk famously got rid of a second-hand car yesterday that he's been struggling to sell. Right. Yesterday being the sixth of January, February. Sorry, which was yeah. when uh, the Falcon Heavy yeah launched for the first time, taking Elon Musk's car. Yeah. The weirdo. Um. So I would like to talk about. Why we get energy from nuclear materials in the first place? Because mm. a lot of people know that it's a actually quite brilliant renewable energy source, mm. but lots of people don't really have a very good idea of where the energy comes from. Right. So some elements of the periodic table, um, especially in that kind of weird kind of fashionable annex down the bottom. Yeah, know? I've never understood what that means. Yeah, no, they're, they're they're down there. It's just to stop. It's just so you can fit it on an A3 piece of paper. They're supposed to go somewhere in the middle, but it looks really wonky if you do that. So, yeah. So in, the, in that trendy little kind of annex down the bottom called the lanthanides and the actinides. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tell me more about actinides. So down there in the actinides, things get a bit crazy. Actually, starting with actinium. Actinium is a particularly crazy element. It, um, they, they exist, but they're not huge fans of existing. They'd much rather, they'd much rather not exist. Okay. You, get, you can sort of think of them as like, they're like, like bad relationships. They're, they're there, but they should really split up. Right. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I was going to throw in a Love Island reference, but I'm not sure. Gonna... <laughs> the chem and amber of the periodic table. Um, 
um, for fans of last year's uh, series of Love Island. So they exist and they're together, but there's a kind of this is this is where my knowledge of the physics begins to break down. So this is where my terms get really hand wavy. But there's like a weird part of physics mm. where once you get past a certain atomic mass, the number of uh, protons versus the number of neutrons in a nuclei begin to sort of dictate whether or not it's stable okay and by stable i mean whether or not it's happy existing yeah and when things get really large um the strong nuclear force which binds uh, the nucleus together you begin to kind of get to the the limits of which that force can act over but by overcoming the strong nuclear force and splitting the the nucleus of these elements apart uh that unleashes all the energy that was holding the nucleus apart and so that energy gets given off as heat and radiation because e equals mc squared because e equals mc squared correct so uh, that was a major realization when they were trying to discover what was going on with plutonium when they first discovered it mm-hmm. um, before the manhattan project they had this equation where they were like okay we've got a uranium atom and we know that it's making these two other atoms then they added up the masses of the two other atoms compared to the uranium atom and they were like oh those two masses are missing a little bit Hmm. and then that was the mass that equaled the mc squared exactly and that energy was huge even though this mass was like i think it was a fifth of the mass of a proton but even so, that energy was vast. And then they were like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to get very messy. Yeah. Potentially for the people of two coastal towns in Japan quite soon. Well, they might not have realised yeah. that at that point. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But the fact that you can turn mass into energy, mm. that, that was when they first really saw that happening, I guess. Yeah. I have, an, I have some other quotes by famous man scientists yes. um, <laughs> who are predicting the end of the world. One of these is, um, it is easier to denote nature plutonium than to denature the evil spirit of man Mm. albert einstein said that in 1946 yeah there's an xkcd quote about plutonium which is things start to go wrong around plutonium brackets things always start to go wrong around plutonium (laughs) it's a for an element that's named after literal hell Mm. um it's really quite fitting so let's finish off then by talking about the future of nuclear energy well the Mm. future of nuclear waste we've already covered it's just going to be there for ages so my favorite thing about the future of nuclear waste is that what if and probably when humanity dies out and, you know, the seas rise up and wash away our cities and the forests grow uh, out of our bones and there's nothing left to indicate that the human being were ever around. The only indication that we ever existed will be our nuclear waste. How it, long will it last? Well, so, some chunks of it will last for hundreds of thousands of years. It, it would require a very, very meticulous alien survey of planet Earth, but they would notice that there'd be collections of some half-lives completely unnaturally out of geological place and they would be able to notice that for millions of years in Sellafield <laughs> yeah in Cumbria <laughs> there'd be that and Kendall mint cake the only <laughs> other material that will last forever that solid block of horrific sugar in Ke- in Kendall and just up the coast there will be Sellafield yeah yeah, that's how it'll go. I've got a fun fact about mm. nuclear disasters. Yes, go for it. Um, today, we all have minuscule amounts of plutonium in us, mm. but that's only well, it's purely because of the nuclear tests mm. and the nuclear fallout from weaponry and, I guess, leakages. Yes. And we're all fine. Yeah, exactly. We're all checking <laughs> over The really interesting thing is that... Um, People salvage sunken metal ships from before the 1950s. Do you know this? There's something called low background steel. So all steel made now contains radiation because everything on planet Earth contains radiation because there's radiation in the air from the weapons tests in the 50s and 60s. 
But if for very specific applications, usually making medical equipment or very highly calibrated scientific equipment, you want steel that doesn't contain radioactive sources. So, and this is very controversial in the South China Seas because um, sunken warships are war graves and thus by international law should not be touched. (gasps) But ships sunk in World War II in the battle between America and Japan and Britain are made of steel and were protected by the Pacific during the weapons test, so there's no radiation in them. Because water is really because good. Because water is really good at shielding, shielding radiation. radiation. So people go down and dri- dig up uh, World War II warships and break them down for steel to be used in scientific equipment. Whoa. Yeah, it's really, it's really, really interesting. So basically, lots of old sunken ships are now being, and especially ones that weren't war graves, uh, being salvaged the world over for like this, this really weirdly valuable steel. That's incredible. Uh, it's really weird. <laughs> Where do bananas come into this? So the banana equivalent dose is yeah, this where also, bananas yeah, come into this? It is. But my what I meant by that question was like, what's special about bananas that means that we use them as a banana equivalent dose? Got it. Uh, a banana bananas contain a lot of potassium, and potassium has quite a high proportion of a radioactive isotope in it. Uh, so bananas are a naturally high potassium source. So bananas are more radioactive than your average fruit. Huh. And so, yeah, so eating a banana gives you a dose of radiation. And then uh, a radiation worker in the UK, so somebody who works as like a medical physicist or somebody who works at a nuclear power plant, their legal dosage is equivalent to eating 20,000 bananas. Whoa! Yeah. um, So if you tried to eat 20,000 bananas, I guess you'd die of diabetes actually <laughs> long I, before you die of the radiation you can't eat many bananas before you suffer the ill effects i think my granddad tried this once and i believe he got up to nine bananas but i think surely that's just from the fiber and the sugar well i think potassium is bad for you in high doses yeah. so it's actually not rather than the radioactive potassium it's the normal potassium that would kill you first <laughs> it's just doing you in yeah exactly yeah. hello this is anna from the future So it turns out that the lethal dose of potassium in bananas is around 400 bananas worth. So I guess my granddad was probably ill from something else. Don't know. Yeah. So if you were to strip out all the other ill effects of bananas, this apparently dangerous fruit. (laughs) um, Yeah, you'd have to, if if you consider, you need to eat 20,000 bananas before the amount of radiation um, you get from you know, starts to be a problem. So, yeah. yeah. I think we're safe with bananas for I think now. we're probably all right with bananas. Well, yeah. we've come quite a long way from radioactive trains. Yes, we have, yeah. <laughs> but um, where can people find this amazing Twitter bot if they'd like to start train spotting? So if you want to start spotting glow-in-the-dark trains, uh, disclaimer, they don't glow in the dark. <laughs> um, if you want to start, uh, if you want to know when you sit in the Duke of York in Brixton, uh, it's at Nuclear Trains. Oh, okay. It's uh, just an automated scraper that reads the timetable every morning and then tweets out the timetable as the trains are going in real time excellent yeah and where can listeners find you if they'd like to see more of what you're up to i don't have a personal twitter account i only have bots if you uh, listeners are interested in what i'm up to uh mattallinson.com is my website i have a, a blog that i update occasionally and links to youtube and various other things i do as well excellent well thank yeah. you for coming on the show matt thank it's you for having me really lovely to talk to you cool. and i'm gonna go and eat loads of bananas So that was my chat with the brilliant Matt Allenson. Thank you so much to him for coming on the show. Now to the questions. Firstly, Alex Lathbridge asks, how much danger is Homer Simpson putting Springfield in by being a bad safety inspector? Well, according to the trusty internet, a safety inspection found 342 safety violations in the Springfield nuclear power plant. Springfield does actually have a toxic waste dump, but nuclear waste has been seen in many other unsafe dumping environments around the city. 
for example, under the sea, stuffed into trees, hidden in children's playgrounds and also in the homes of plant employees. Now, we don't actually see many ill effects of this on the population of Springfield, apart from Blinky, the three-eyed fish, who lives in water near the nuclear power plant. Ionising radiation causes DNA damage, which can lead to cell mutations and diseases like cancer. If there's damage to the reproductive cells, like sperm and eggs, this can lead to birth abnormalities, for example, three-eyed fish. Though, as far as I can tell, there have been no statistically significant observations of such mutations happening in humans. The second question comes from Dr Steve Cross, who you will have heard in episode one of Real Talk. And Steve asks, what happens to all the lab stuff that's contaminated with radioactive materials? For example, all the pipette tips. Well, this sort of radioactive contamination from lab equipment is generally low-level waste. Generally, this is stored on site if it's in a nuclear power plant, or it's shipped to a low-level storage facility, if it's in a university, say, where this waste is stored until the radioactivity has decayed away. This can take months, or in some cases, several years, but after it's decayed away, it can be thrown away with the ordinary rubbish. So that's it for this episode of Real Talk. Thank you very much for listening once again. If you've enjoyed this episode and indeed all of the other episodes, please leave us a lovely five-star review on iTunes so that we can reach out to the ears of all of the other materials nerds out there. If you want to get in touch, you know the drill by now. You can tweet me at Real Talk, that's R-I-A-L Talk, or you can find us on Facebook. Thanks again for listening. I've been Anna Pajajski and I'll see you next time on Real Talk. 